everyone at the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership for asking me to come out this morning, as well as the good folks from DMH for all their really great work. Uh, I'm logging in today from my office at the Semmel Institute uh, at UCLA on campus here in Westwood, uh, right across from our hospital uh, and right in my offices of our UCLA Gambling Studies Program, as well as our UCLA Cannabis Research Initiatives. So a few months ago when they asked me to come talk about this, they said, uh, well, you talk about all sorts of issues related to uh, Asian American Pacific Islander addiction, treatment, your experiences, reducing stigma, AAPI hate, uh, you know, everything all together. So it's a lot. Uh, I've kind of distilled it down to what I think are kind of the highest priority areas in addiction uh, with AAPI clients, families, and communities. So individuals, families, and of course, the community that we live here in Los Angeles. So what I do here at UCLA, I've been here at UCLA nearly uh, 20 plus years uh, as an addiction psychiatrist. Uh, I do a lot of work in the clinical research, community engagement, and the teaching lane around addiction. My primary research hat is running the gambling studies program, where we study uh, behavior related to gambling behavior, not just gambling addiction, but also why do people gamble? What's the impact of gambling on various communities? We've done a lot of work on looking at gambling on AAPI communities and things like that. And then more recently, a few years ago, I started the Cannabis Research Initiative, um, basically to address the impact of cannabis use on body, brains, and minds, particularly here in Los Angeles. So today, and this is first where I get some financial support for some of our research, Creative Care is a residential treatment program uh, where we are looking at reasons why people leave treatment within the first two weeks. Uh, Connections and Recovery is a in-home sober uh, slash recovery companion company where they go inside the home and actually provide case management, recovery support uh, to patients and family uh, uh, you know, who are in recovery. So those are two partners that I work with. Today, we really have three main objectives. First, I wanna talk about some values and, and there's more than just three, but some of the existing cultural values that we see in the office, in the hospital, in the emergency rooms, uh, on helplines that currently are very active among AAPI communities that potentially could increase the risk for addictive disorders uh, that actually make them more vulnerable. I think that's certainly uh, very, very important. Number two, we're gonna talk about screening and assessment techniques for addictive disorders that we can use in any setting, whether you're in the office, whether you're working at a festival, whether you're doing community outreach, whether you're again, taking calls from inquiring patients and families um, on the phone. And then we're gonna talk about some uh, office-based techniques, I think that I've learned through the years that have been helpful, at least for me, to keep clients and families coming back. One of the things you'll hear me say over and over and over again in treatment is we can't really do good treatment if no one's there, if no one's showing up. Unfortunately, we all know and have that experience that some AAPI clients will come once and then never come back. So we really want to make sure we do better at getting clients engaged and informed. And I have a few ideas and techniques for that. And as we're going along, if there are specific questions, topics you want me to talk about even that may or may not be related to the things happening here today, throw them in the chat and we can throw it all in there because I think it's much more important for us to have 
ongoing discussion about uh, topics of, of interest to people. All right, so a little bit about my background. I was born in uh, Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago, in a town called Glen Ellen. I went to high school out there, and um, very, very few uh, AAPI uh, folks. I think I was three out of 450 uh, high school graduates in my class that were identified as Asian American. I went to college at Northwestern and medical school at Northwestern and came out here to LA in the late 90s, uh, 19, 1998 to be precise. Uh, when people say, and for years, of course, I'd have that experience of not who are you or tell me about your background, but it would be, what are you? Um, and it was always interesting growing up in the 80s and 90s that that was considered a acceptable question. Well, now clearly that's not. I would get that a lot. What are you? You know, are you what? And I'd say, I, I don't know. Now, very clearly through, you know, understanding uh, the impact of culture, I say I'm a second generation Chinese American identifying primarily as the country of origin where my parents are from, but also the ethnicity and the culture that I, I associate uh, most with. So as a Chinese American, second generation, there are, um, you know, cultural values and traditions that we do in our household that aren't always done in other American households. So that's very important. I am Generation X and uh, being born in the late uh, early 70s. When you think about that intersection with the work we do with AAPI families, it's very interesting that, of course, right, between um, first, second, third generation, combining then with the country of origin and different cultures, combining with the actual generation from boomers to uh, Generation X, millennials, and now Zoomers, all that matters and all that does go into potentially us doing a better job of understanding uh, how clients are uh, experiencing addiction and in particular what will help to keep them engaged in treatment. First off, I got to do a shout out. Uh, is anyone here on the call working for APCTC, uh, an APCTC, again, Asian Pacific Counseling Treatment Center has been around now 35 years. I worked there as a moonlighter when I was in residency from uh, a third year on for about three, four years. And it taught me so much about uh, cultural psychiatry, so many wonderful things. And uh, I owe a lot to Dr. Sa and uh, uh, many folks who were there um, uh, uh, you know, uh, that I worked with about that. So for folks who are looking for more services, APCTC is still there, multiple locations throughout. The other shout out I'm gonna give out is uh, ADAP. Um, is anyone from ADAP working here today? ADAP is Asian American Drug Abuse Program, uh, headquartered in uh, Los Angeles with residential facilities in Crenshaw. So I used to, we used to work with a number of folks at ADAP about 15 years ago. Uh, I don't know who's still working there now, but again, they've also been around for, for more than 25, uh, more than four, 50 years, nearly 50 years, providing services for Asian Americans uh, struggling with addictive disorders. So uh, that's also out there. And there's so many other agencies, right? Um, you know, we don't barely have time to know who's who and what's what. And that's part of the uh, networking and hoping we could do here today. All right, so let's just start with a case study. Do you have a flavor of some of the kind of cases that I see involving uh, AAPI uh, in addiction? And we're going to start with uh, grandma. She's 84. She's a first generation Chinese female. And she has restless leg syndrome. So particularly at night, she feels like there's twitching and her legs are constantly moving. 
she also has arthritis in her knees and her back and her and her and her hips and her and her elbows are hurt. She's been taking prescription opioids for the last 15 years as prescribed by her primary care doctor. But she's having trouble. She's not sleeping well. She shakes. Uh, she doesn't eat much. And her daughter doesn't like the fact that she's taking prescription opioids every day for this pain. The daughter, who's very in tune to what's happening in the world, is concerned about opioid misuse and addiction and dependency, uh, and, and, but was and also worried about her mom being in, in, in physical pain. So every time grandma tries to lower the opioids, and she's taking very small doses, two tablets a day uh, of an opioid for pain. But every time she goes down to one or to zero, she can't sleep at all. She's more anxious. She's in more physical pain. And her restless leg syndrome is actually worse. It's more shaky. It's more disabling. It's more difficult. So then the daughter brings her into my office and says, hey, you're an addiction specialist. I think my grandma is addicted to opioid pills. When you talk to grandma, is she doing anything that we would think about what it's a, quote, person with substance use disorder is doing? No, she's not buying it off the street. She's not lying to her daughter. She's not taking more than intended. She's not, you know, uh, showing signs of, you know, emotional distress and continuing to take it. But she does have tolerance. She does have withdrawal. And she does have the experience when she cuts down that her condition gets worse. So many questions at intake. Again, is she really maybe addicted and she's not telling us about other things she might not be doing? Is she just physically dependent, like in the way people are dependent on insulin who have diabetes? Is she faking the whole thing? Meaning, is the daughter coming to me to try and get more opioids? Is she just depressed? And every time she lowers the opioids, what we're seeing is a rebound in depressive symptoms. So that's the kind of question I want to bring up because what happens is it turns out her actual diagnosis are all those things, chronic pain, depression, opioid use disorder. And one of the things I learned at APCTC very early on is that Asian Americans experience depression in very different ways. We all have heard this, of course, somatic features, pain, low energy, low vitality, um, buzzing, numb, heaviness in my head. And I remember early on when I was a resident, I kept asking clients at APTCC, are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you anxious? And they'd be like, no, I'm none of those things, but I have a very heavy feeling in my head. And I would say, well, that's depression. They're like, no, I have a very heavy feeling in my head. Turns out then that what we actually did for grandma was identify these three conditions. And I actually prescribed her a medication called Suboxone for opioid use disorder. That allowed her to go off the prescription opioids and it allowed her to be on a quote, safer medication that would not have risk for her liver, not have risk for overdose. And it actually helped um, improve her pain. We talked a lot about reducing a lot of other medications she was taking um, she was taking a lot of Tylenol. She was taking a lot of other, um, a lot of uh, herbal remedies that potentially uh, were not that helpful. She was taking actually CBD as well, 
So we, we stopped that. We also encouraged her to begin Tai Chi, something she loved doing, but stopped because she was in pain. And then in talking with the daughter, we talked about all these other culturally relevant, supportive things that helped her depression. Returning to the Korean spas with friends, starting acupuncture, going back to watch Korean soap operas that she used to really love. And she stopped watching the Korean soap operas because she thought they were actually making her pain worse because she wasn't moving. FaceTiming as well, connecting with her friends in Korea. Now that last list, we may say, that's not a standard list you would think about at all for treatment of depression or opioid use disorder, but it's actually the most important because it restores positive social connections. And one of the things that you'll hear me talk about over and over and over is that for any patient struggling with addiction, especially Asian Americans struggling with addictive disorders, restoring positive social connections while minimizing shame is absolutely our number one task. When we go back to some general things, that's an idea of the kind of cases that we see and the kind of cases you're seeing in the office that are probably cases of addiction. And it's really us to make a sense of how do we make those connections determine whether someone has or doesn't meet criteria for addiction. And furthermore, how do we get proper help for them? This is just a quick review, of course, uh, um, definitions of Asian Pacific Islanders. Uh, but I also want to highlight this. There are a lot of terms have been using around Asian American Pacific Islander. That's the term I've been wanting to use more consistently, AAPI, because I think it reflects the experience of, of men and women in America. But for years, I remember it just be API, Asian Pacific Islander or Asian American. I've also seen Asian Pacific American. Uh, we've seen all sorts of iterations. So I think it's important for us to have standard language, AAPI. And I'm curious if someone wants to throw in the chat, is there been any movement by LA County DMH or uh, the various service groups to use consistent languaging, consistent uh, uh, terms so that we are all using the same type of languages? Okay. So again, one of the first things I learned through the years, and again, this is something we all know, but it's worth highlighting how all APIs are not the same. It's so many different languages and cultures and histories and they're really unique. And I think during my residency training, I think this was an example back in the 90s where we really had very, very little training in cultural psychiatry. We might get a few sort of things. Oh, you know, APIs, you know, if you're going to go meds, use low doses or you know, recognize they're more sensitive. And it was very cursory. It was not what we would call kind of innovative or, or, or contemporary like right now. So I think it really is invoking us to take the time to learn about all these different languages and dialects uh, and different values. Again, when I started working at APCCC, there were a number of Vietnamese clients that I had there and I had very little appreciation for what the Vietnamese American experience was like here in America. I had the experience as a Chinese American growing up in a very um, suburban Chicago uh, with very little historical trauma, with very minimal uh, issues of immigration, acculturation, things in my family. That's not the case for a lot of folks. So I just highlight that for us to continue to do that work, uh, even if we are APIs ourselves, to learn the other culture very well. LA County numbers, these are always so stunning to me taken from uh, AAPI data, 13 million in LA County, the largest Asian American group, Chinese with a 2.1 million 
Asian population rate about 16% of the population of LA County AAPI nationally. We know that, of course, at around 7%. Um, uh, and again, very, very you know, significant numbers. Uh, I just want to quick run through some of the barriers, which I think many of us know about and experience. But as I'm going through this, I want people to think about what can I do in my clinic? What can I do to ask DMH to break down some of these barriers? What can I do as a provider or as a case manager or as a student to reduce and lower these barriers? Because we hear about the barriers all the time, but rarely do we actually hear how do we overcome them? Well, the first issue is when it goes to AAPI and addiction, that there's a large underestimation of how serious the problem is. About 12 years ago, I attended a, a, a NIDA a conference on uh, addiction to Asian Americans. And the theme was very much, we don't have data. We don't have good definable uh, research because what happens is all that census stuff, all the community prevalence data gets lumped into one. So all those different AAPI cultures get all labeled as AAPI. And as we just talked about, it's not the same. We also have heard a lot that those community surveys and those national surveys show a lower prevalence rate of addiction compared to non-APIs. So what then happens is that when you have a quote, lower prevalence, you get less money, you get less attention, you get less need, you get less um, you know, researchers in that. But I remember a, uh, an alcohol researcher who was studying a, a Japanese-American uh, alcohol use disorder. And he said to me, I forget his name, but he said it so well, you know, although that number is lower, the incidence and prevalence of uh, substance use disorder among AAPI population, it's not zero. That's very important. We know that. So just because it may be lower, it's not zero. And for those folks who do have it, it's significant. So underestimation of the, ex of the true extent of the problem, data that's not fully reliable or really uh, cultural or specific is a huge barrier. So our reverse of that, we have to get more data. Number two, again, we just look in all our clinics, the lack of culturally relevant providers. This is older data. I think it's probably still true about 20 years ago that this is across the nation of only 90,000, back in the day, only 2% of the doctoral level psychologists uh, identified as Asian. I don't know what those numbers are like now. I think they're coming up. I still think they fall woefully way shorter than we, we expect. One of the key myths about treatment effectiveness in addiction, again, is that treatment retention, duration, and outcomes are very similar. And it's, there's this idea that barriers to treatment or that AAPIs don't do as well in treatment, that's completely false. Inside the community here, particularly in LA, the stigma is phenomenally very, very high for addiction in AAPI communities. We know that. We have a whole section on stigma that I'll talk about a little bit later. I'll still say that. It goes about how do we reverse stigma? How do we reduce it? How do we address it? Of course, we know that that model minority myth continues to drive people away from treatment, it continues to drive and fuel um, stigma. I think that's an area that we have to look at. And a lot of AAPI communities through the, the years as I worked with said to me, you know what? Drugs aren't our number one problem in our community. It's other things, crime, uh, safety, food insecurity, housing. Uh, I remember doing a project with San Francisco Chinatown 
um, and their neighborhood surveys were identifying what is the greatest concern in your community. And number one really was access to um, affordable food. This was maybe 12 years ago, but it was really striking. It wasn't things like drugs and things like that. So again, oftentimes we forget that addiction treatment inside AAPI communities may not necessarily be the number one top priority the communities are looking for. We know then again, of course, language is a huge barrier. Uh, I only speak uh, uh, English. So when I was at APCTC, the whole idea of connecting with someone who didn't speak and having to use a translator was, a, was a, a, you know, just made treatment go longer. So, but if you are also don't speak English, just not seeking help because you don't know where to go or you can't read the signs or the websites aren't in your language, I think that's a huge area consideration there. All right. So the other thing, again, we have to look at, we mentioned briefly about that model minority myth. And I think what I wanted to highlight here is that from this was a report from 20 years ago. And I'm curious again, is what DMH is doing to support us to reduce that model minority myth? Are there public service campaigns? Are there mental health campaigns? Do we have uh, men and women in peer recovery that are debunking that myth? How are we doing it through our own social media? How are we doing it through podcasts? That's really the answers I'd like to see us kind of think about. Again, in 2022, when you think about the technologies we have to bring about language uh, skills, we have the software, we have AT&T translation services, we have telehealth. So the idea that no matter where you are, you cannot provide services in that language, I think is something that should not happen. When I was at APCCC, you know, late in 2000, I didn't have a smartphone. Now we have to get better at using some of this technology, real world translation software, or again, AT&T telephone software, or also these video uh, connections. Okay, other barriers for us to look at. Let's just go back, take a step back and look at the broad strokes of the current issues of AAPIs and addictive disorders. First, as a reminder, Let's go back and see what's inside DSM-5. DSM-5 now is almost, would you believe it, nine years old, coming up on 10 years next year. And there were some changes compared to uh, DSM-4 that many of us maybe were trained on in the 80s or 90s for us to realize. First is this language, and we have to do better. I still see so much uh, language that's stigmatizing. And for a long time, I was like, yeah, words don't really, whatever. But the longer I started to realize it does matter. So when we use the term substance abuse, that's a DSM-4 term, but it is a very stigmatizing term. The term we're recommending now, of course, is person-centered language, a person with substance use disorder. You say, wait a minute, Asian American Drug Abuse Program, National Institute on Drug Abuse, Al National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. There's been discussions about reworking the names of these federal agencies to different things. The DSM-5 removed abuse and calls it what it is, substance use disorder. One disorder, no abuse, no dependence, one condition, otherwise known as addiction. Addictive disorders is also a fine substance use disorder. Has 11 different criteria, 11 different, so essentially a nearly 
infinite number of possibilities in terms of presentation and the stories that it might look like because the criteria are, are, are all very, very different. But in DSM-5, that's important. Cannabis withdrawal was added as an actual condition and the symptoms, caffeine withdrawal there as well. And I put this in there because a lot of times mental health providers may not recognize cannabis withdrawal when it's happening right in front of you. So someone says to you, well, for the last week or so, I haven't been sleeping well, I haven't been eating, I've been more irritable, I've been more anxious, I don't feel good, it may actually be cannabis withdrawal. So that oftentimes is subtle, it doesn't drive people to go to the emergency room, but it can change their kind of mental health state very easily. Tobacco use disorder is added as a uh, condition in there. Gambling, and we'll spend a lot of time on gambling, was moved from impulse control into the world of addiction. So that was a big change there. What was not added was hypersexual disorder or sex addiction or video game addiction, otherwise known as internet gaming disorder. That was filed, of course, in the back section under, um, under conditions for further study. Um, and the interesting part there is that at the time of publication, the vast majority of work was done with Asian males in Korea um, and China. That's where a lot of the research was coming from. So that essentially was saying, well, we're not quite ready to give it a full-blown addiction diagnosis or an actual diagnostic code, but we, we do recognize that there's some of these behaviors that are causing difficulties out there. Um, ICD, of course, now called video game addiction, internet gaming disorder, accepted that way as gaming disorder, uh, but DSM-5 has not yet. So um, when turning to substances, this is data taken from SAMHSA, looking at national survey data, national survey on drug use uh, in the household. Um, alcohol use disorder among Asians, um, uh, and you'll know, look at this across the last five years. Now, this is before the pandemic started, before the pandemic started. And you'll see roughly for ages 18 and up, about seven and three, we'll call it about 10% of adults 18 and up over the last year are meeting criteria for alcohol use disorder. 10% of AAPIs compared to non-AAPIs where that rates around 13, 14%. So again, one out of 10 Asian uh, struggling with alcohol use disorder. When it comes to substances of concern, again, you see these very similar patterns in non-AAPI group in terms of what is the most common uh, illicit substance used, cannabis, marijuana. And again, that's gonna change greatly as more and more states now uh, recategorize that. But in frequency, things that we're likely to see in the office, cannabis, misuse of sedative hypnotics, benzodiazepines, uh, things like that, uh, hallucinogens, uh, mushrooms, LSD, PS PCP, cocaine, inhalants, meth. Now, of course, this is national survey data. In LA County, the meth is actually much, much more higher, upwards of three, 4% of LA County are some of the numbers that I've seen there. In terms of opioids, the real question has been, has the opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic, has it also impacted AAPI community? And the answer to that is, of course, uh, absolutely yes. And it's not that AAPIs have escaped this. 
Again, the numbers of AAPIs are lower compared to non-AAPIs for opioid use disorders. But if you look at these numbers in 2019, 18 and above, 1% plus 3. So um, very small percentage of 1 to 1.5%. Uh, this is both prescription pills and heroin. But again, you see this fact here. Estimate not known showed due to low precision. Again, the surveying, sampling, the not getting a representative sample, a lot of API uh, respondents who don't speak English, don't respond or don't pick up. So we know that that's probably a lower than expected number. But still, 1% of, um, of API meeting criteria for opioid disorder, you know, very, very striking. So some facts that SAMHSA wants us to remember when we're doing our work is number one, um, suicide, of course, has increased dramatically over the last 10 years in AAPIs. Substance use disorders significantly increased suicidality. So again, we if you're working in DMH, suicidality is kind of a core thing you work at. A lot of it driven by a substance use disorder and a lot of times unrecognized. So as an example, just excessive use of cannabis, cannabis use disorder increases suicidality. We tend not to think of cannabis as a suicidogenic or associated with suicidality, but it worsens suicidal ideation and it increases suicidal behavior. So that's something we have to think about there as well. Uh, again, 18 and older increases in past use for adults with any mental illness. Again, we're in that lane of dual diagnosis now where we know things go hand in hand. And I remember starting up 20 years ago, we had DMH on this side, we had ADP, alcohol drug programs, on this side. Uh, and the two services didn't really overlap. The last decade, I say, I think we're starting to see more of that, more of that crossover, but there's still definitely two unique treatment systems, right? Drug waivered Medi-Cal uh, treatment providers through SAPC, Substance Abuse Prevention Center, DMH, some of DMH clinics have addiction treatment providers, some have very little. Uh, and I think that split, unfortunately, still needs to be um, brought back. When it comes to tobacco, this is really an area I think we don't pay that much attention to, and we should, because this is the condition that is likely to cause a lot of damage to uh, clients. Among Asian American Pacific Islanders, that prevalence rate is about 12% in the state of California. This is a number taken about 10 years ago. The state of California has about 13% people are still smoking. But I wanted to highlight something really interesting here. And that's where the prevalence of cigarette smoking between different cultures varies very greatly. This is SAMHSA data showing that 20% of the Korean Americans were smoking cigarettes, which is much higher than Asian Indian or Chinese. Now, that's very important because again, I'm curious how many of you incorporate tobacco cessation as part of your regular routine practices? Uh, and just throw it in the chat or raise your hand if you actually do that, um, put that there. Because again, the other thing I'm curious about, does DMH promote that work? Are there tools? Of course there are there initiatives are there incentives to do more tobacco cessation? I think that's definitely been an area of addiction that's been uh, underutilized and under-resourced. Okay. 
right, so let me uh, pause there. First, any questions about substances uh, among AAPIs, trends that we're seeing before you get into the gambling? And, and feel free to uh, take your, your microphone off if you have any questions or take your video off or put it in the chat. I think again, right now in 2022, the things I'm most concerned about in the substances are all of them, but in particular methamphetamine, cannabis, alcohol, and tobacco, and opiates. All of them are still very prevalent. All of them that we see happening among AAPI populations. Um, well, we're going to move forward now to a new section in AAPI addiction, and that's gambling. A few years ago, we started the Gambling Studies Program in 2005, and I was particularly interested in understanding the neuroscience of gambling behavior and developing treatments that were effective. What One of the very first projects we ever did, though, was trying to understand what were some of those cultural values that were um, present in Asians that led them to gamble. And at the time, there was still this kind of stereotype that Asians love gambling and it appeals to them and, quote, it's in their blood. A lot of, like, dangerous stereotypes, you really think about it. But that was where the call was. I remember getting calls from a, a number of AAPI nonprofits saying, we're so glad that there's a, the, the UCLA Gambling Studies Program because we're seeing gambling disproportionately impact our Asian communities. So voices from San Francisco, Chinatown, uh, LA, uh, Cerritos, Garden Grove area, Westminster area, uh, even parts of uh, LA, uh, Chinatown, talking about we have a number of issues with gambling among Asians. Right around 2003, 2004, there are a number of really tragic cases of men and women in LA County um, who developed severe gambling disorder and ultimately uh, had a very high profile uh, tragic outcomes, suicide, murder suicides, there's a story of the Donut King, a uh, Cambodian self-made businessman who also developed a very serious gambling disorder and lost millions of dollars. So there was starting to get some attention toward gambling right around 2003, 2005. What we can say is this, and I just want to highlight again, another kind of case that you might see. I would imagine you are already seeing men and women with gambling problems, but they're not likely to come out and talk about it on their first visit or, or on any intake. And here's an example of kind of how that story would go. So I got a call, this was years ago, maybe eight years ago from um, a son uh, and a daughter who said, hey, you know, I know you're a gambling studies program director. I know you see patients. Uh, we don't know what to do about our dad as gambling. I said, okay, well, come on in for a, a family consultation. So the dad's not there, it's just Mary and John, the two children. And they're second generation Taiwanese American. They're in their mid thirties, very successful. One was a lawyer, one was a uh, MBA graduate. Um, they basically, you know, you know, very, you know, very highly educated. They said their, their father was a retired businessman, but they were concerned about his constant gambling. Uh, and essentially what he was doing was that in retirement, he was going on a casino bus to the Native American casino or to Las Vegas three, four times a week. And he would gamble and spend upwards of twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 every time. And he had a large amount of money in his bank account, but he just kept draining and spending and spending and spending. Their mother, who's still alive, 
was concerned, but didn't feel that she could say anything to the husband to get him to stop. So their questions were really things like, how do we get our dad to stop gambling? How do we protect our family's uh, money? How do we support our mom who doesn't like him gambling, but she feels powerless from getting them to stop because he was the man that made, made all the money. What are we supposed to do to make our situation better? And then they asked, well, what do we do when our dad asks us for money? So sometimes when he's gambling and he can't access the bank accounts, he would ask them to forward him money and things like that. So it's an example of a perfect example where it turned on. I never met the father. I met with the Mary and John probably three or four sessions, uh, but their family was impacted by gambling disorder by their dad. Their family was distressed. Their family was in need of seeking help. Now, their father never would ever go seek treatment for a gambling addiction, but Mary and John did. And that's one of the stories I want to highlight with AAPIs struggling with addictive disorders. And oftentimes, the shame and stigma and denial is so great, you can't treat the person. You have to treat the family. So by working with the family, we were able to empower the mother. We were able to reduce any enabling behavior. We got them to be able to protect their assets and really encourage them to, to spend time with their dad to um, increase the amount of connections and things he's doing rather than uh, promoting the gamble. All right, so we go back to why this is all matters, an example of cultural. Um, I got interested in gambling studies um, in part because I also had a number of, of my family members that struggled with gambling disorder. And this came from, I, remember, I can't remember where I got this, there was some article somewhere talking about Asian gambling, but it said uh, one Chinese proverb demonstrates the Chinese culture's acceptance of gambling as an activity. A little gambling is soothing and relaxing. Heavy gambling could affect your mental health. And I don't know the original source quote from this, but again, it highlights that gambling is acceptable, gambling is good for you, like a glass of wine, but that if you go too much, it's too much. It's already promoting, it's not promoting you to gamble heavily, but it's saying to do it so only to the point where it's soothing and relaxing. This is an actual uh, photo from one of these uh, buses. And I'm curious if anyone's been on a bus or ridden one on these buses, uh, just you know, go ahead and let me know. There are here in LA and in many major cities, um, dozens of these buses that even throughout the pandemic were running, where they would pick um, up people and drive them to casinos for the day and drive back. Now, many of these buses are located in Monterey Park, Alhambra, downtown Chinatown. Um, and you don't have to be Asian to go on the bus, but that's the whole point is that they are marketed heavily toward the Asian communities. They uh, are oftentimes are free to ride or very minimal, two, three dollars. And at the end of it, there's oftentimes a free meal. So there's a lot of enticements attached to it. Uh, we've done some outreach works with the buses and trying to do some screening for gambling addiction on the buses. But I always think this is a perfect opportunity for DMH outreach to either ride the buses themselves or to get advertising spaces or use this television to get those DMH messages out. I mean, this is a captive audience for an hour or two hours. These are older adults for the most part. These are the ones who are, who are in the most need, I think, 
for mental health services, but are the ones who are the least likely to ever want to actually uh, reach out. So the question about who benefits, who benefits by these buses, again, why do they exist? They exist because there's a demand for uh, people to go to the casinos. They're very free. And who benefits, of course, is the casinos because the men and women go to the casinos, they spend money, they spend time there. These bus operators are usually not operated by the casinos themselves. They're just uh, the bus companies themselves. There's been a few high profile accidents through the years where some of these buses have crashed and a number of people have lost their lives. So I think we remember those. So we think about that intersection of Asian culture and gambling and some themes in a lot of Chinese culture, Korean and Japanese and Filipino about gambling being part of the society and part of family lives. And of course, the Lunar New Year, which just passed, where gambling and is part of the whole celebration, is part of the eating, is part of the spectacle that comes with the Lunar New Year. Um, and there are a number of factors that we learned through the years that these are cultural factors that certainly promote the uh, gambling behavior and may continue and perpetuate ongoing gambling. The idea that if you win money in gambling, that, that, that's okay. That's a good way to make money. It's not seen as unlucky money if you win it. That the idea that gambling is a way to look at your, your, your fate. And when you come from societies that think about uh, predetermination and themes of, of fate, then that's a way to say, well, maybe this is a test of fate. There's a theme that I learned a few years ago about honoring the ancestors and the gods and paying respect to the elders. And that sometimes if you lose money, that's not to be seen as your fault, but that's seen as a sacrifice to the ancestors. Or that was your ancestors' way of saying, it's time for you to give back to us. I've not heard that so much in patience, but I, you know, I am well aware of, at least in my own family, this idea of we have to sacrifice for our ancestors and then we have to go pay our respects and give things to them, food, lucky money or our time to, to remember them. The other thing you know, in terms of a lot of the uh, acculturation immigration idea is that gambling as a way of actually moving up, you know, if you win money, then maybe you can then quit your job and, and the restaurant or the laundry and you can move up to something uh, much more sustainable uh, that can promote ongoing gambling. Other things that we've learned about the, a lot of the kind of emphasis on numbers, having power over life events, uh, the number eight, of course, we know to be seen as very, very lucky. Um, uh, different numbers have equated with uh, bad luck or bad things coming to you. And of course, when you have a lot of friends and family that are gambling, you're going to pick up the gambling activity there as well. These are the other things that we know that happen in certain Asian families that promote onset of gambling, particularly at a young age, and promote people to continue to gamble uh, on a repetitive basis. This slide shows kind of the difference when we think about like the differences in the culture, the Chinese culture, thinking about gambling as an investment, a way to make money, mostly harmless, not really a risky activity. It's more, again, of a entertainment and something that uh, we uh, you, you could win a lot, but you could lose and you lose. That's part of the game. Contrast that to some Western cultures that view it more as, yeah, it is risky and it is entertainment, but it's not really tied into my fate. It's not really tied into my future. It's more tied into what I'm doing today. So this is taken from um, 
a report done out of Massachusetts that was looking at Asian gambling very closely to, to really tease out some of the factors of why there may be more uh, risk in Asian communities to develop gambling disorder or why there's just more gambling in Asian communities in general. They said that many of the interviewees, these are from Boston, Chinatown, men and women living in Boston, Chinatown, described various dependency on gambling in, in casinos to get rid of the drudgery of work and low paying jobs, working in the China, in the restaurants, working in the laundry, working in, um, you know, in, in the factories and textile, as well as to deal with the isolation in very isolated neighborhoods that had no alternative opportunities for recreation. Again, the idea, think about Boston Chinatown or New York Chinatown or Chicago Chinatown or even our LA Chinatown and the idea we're living and working there and then buses now that would take you out of that community into a very elegant and opulent casino. Uh, and I think that was very interesting to hear about that from interviewees themselves. And of course, that could perpetuate ongoing gambling, which of course would be a risk factor for gambling disorder. So I really want to highlight kind of the things that I've learned about gambling behavior over the last 15 years is that this is a story essentially in California. We began to recognize uh, 15 years ago that uh, certain AAPI communities like San Francisco, Chinatown, had higher rates of gambling addiction than expected. We had more campaigns. We had, again, some of these very tragedies that were very public. But in the last decade, we started to have more funding by the states of, uh, to fund for treatment of gambling disorder. But we started to have some work, not a lot, to figure out how do we provide screening, prevention, and treatment that are unique message to AAPI communities. So where we're at in 2021 or 2022 is really you know, an emerging area where we know that there's a, in certain communities in America, particularly Asian uh, communities, that there are higher rates of gambling problems. Here's a study we did about 10 years ago we went inside one of our card clubs in LA County and we sat down there for four days and we just surveyed random people that came up. What we've identified was that 40% of the people inside this card group identified as AAPI, 40, four zero, way higher than the 13% in uh, LA County, 60% non-Asian. We also recognize through a screening instrument, which identifies gambling disorder, that about 40% of those AAPIs and nearly 35% of the non-APIs inside that casino met criteria for gambling addiction. Makes sense. If you have problems with gambling, you're gonna go inside the casino. So in other words, we were identifying a brick and mortar building that had tremendous risk and a much higher than level AAPI community. One of the things we had wanted to do then was actually set up screening and health intervention and mental health support for AAPI gamblers inside the casino. We never actually were able to get that done, but there's another thing I'm, I think VMH can do more of is thinking about going into the casinos to provide mental health screening, mental health support or awareness of DMH. Now, a lot of DMH or public partners say, well, I don't know what it looks like. To the, what does it look like when we partner with a casino? 
At the same time, that's where Asians are. That's where people are. I was at Hollywood Park Casino about a month ago. I think it was on a Saturday night. And again, in 2022, during a pandemic, I estimated there were about 400 people there. I estimated that about a third also were AAPIs. So this hasn't changed much over the last decade. In San Francisco, as another example, they went into uh, San Francisco uh, Asian communities and found um, in this particular community that this was their mixture of Vietnamese, Filipino, Chinese, and uh, Latinx. Similarly, if you were a non-API in San Jose, your risk of developing gambling disorder was somewhere in the order of 4%. If you were API, it was also about 4%, but you were trending higher in a more severe side of gambling disorder. But what we also realized is again, 10 years ago, API said that identified with gambling problems said, it's much hard to talk about this. I don't want to talk about anyone about my gambling. I would never discuss my gambling problem with any other person because it's too shameful. So the barriers that always exist for all of their addictions, well, are even more so. I have a lot of shame about what I've done. I don't have any money to access care. I have no idea where I would even go, even if I wanted to get help for gambling behavior. Okay. So with that, that's where we were fortunate to create a state-funded treatment program to address gambling disorder. That's what this is it's called CalGets, uh, problemgambling.ca.gov. Essentially, it's a full-service state program, no cost. So any of your clients that are being seen in DMH, if they have a gambling problem, they can access this treatment system in addition to what they're doing with you. And they can get a therapist at no cost that can provide telehealth services for them in their own homes. That's really great. So in order to get those services, it's 1-800-GAMBLER. But even for you, you're, uh, all therapists here today, you can download uh, a self-help workbook that we created that's available in all sorts of different Asian languages. You see Hmong, Japanese, Korean, Laotian, Lumen, uh, Punjabi, Thai, Vietnamese, Tagalog, uh, Samoan, Chinese. And this workbook, which is about 30 pages or so, uh, you can just give to the client or you yourself as a therapist can use it as a roadmap of doing therapy for men and women with gambling disorder. Uh, so that's available as a culturally uh, available service. You can print it out, you can send it as a PDF, um, all that sort of thing. To access the state system, 1-800-GAMBLER. Again, we um, have nearly 180 providers in our gambling treatment network. These are therapists, LCSWs, MFTs, PhDs, PsyDs. They're scattered throughout the state of California. If you are interested in becoming a provider, uh, let me know. We have training to happen a couple times a year that we authorize licensed people. And then you can provide services for gamblers and then get paid by this uh, treatment system, which is paid out of the Office of Problem Gambling, um, California Department of Public Health. So if you're working in a DMH clinic, if your clinic is say, yes, we want you to get trained to provide gambling services, you can provide services inside the DMH clinic and then bill the California Department of Public Health to receive funding for those services inside that DMH clinic. So again, 
we built this treatment system for gambling disorder and you can only treat not just the gamblers but also family members themselves so like mary and john people who are struggling with their family member they can also receive therapy at no cost so i really wanted to highlight that because that's a system that we built and we want people to be well aware of that um, and know that they can reach those services and even be the person providing those services if you go through the proper training. There's a great question here about, um, let me take a look at this. Do people want to stop gambling? There would need to be some motivation. Again, it's like no, like no different than any other addictive behavior. You know, we need motivation and inspiration for people to seek treatment. So by the time people come see me for the gambling problem, it's pretty severe. It's been going on for several years, large debts, lots of problem functioning. The real challenge is how to get, imagine those older adults who are on the bus who don't have full diagnostic criteria for gambling addiction, but they could because they're vulnerable. How do we get them not necessarily to stop gambling, but to stop gambling in a way that could create problems for them? I think that's the part of the question that we're really looking at. Another great question is, is how the statistics and populations are compared to online gambling issues. So our preferred forms of gambling that for patients who come into our state treatment program, the number one is slot machines, electronic gaming machines. The number two is casino table games, um, blackjack, craps, poker. The number three is the lottery. Curiously, online internet gambling for men and women coming into treatment as of today is a little lower down the list. But that doesn't mean that these things aren't addictive. They are very addictive. Um, it just means that when we don't have them as regulated in the state of California, online gambling is a little bit harder to get to um, in the state of California than in other states. Uh, how prevalent is problem gambling among online gamblers versus brick and mortar casino? Again, if you took 100 online gamblers versus 100 brick and mortar uh, problem gamblers, we would um, who just do it on a regular basis. The estimates I've seen is going to be about the same in terms of prevalence rate, being about one to two percent of people who gamble regularly will develop gambling disorder. So that can change, though, of course. Uh, as you expand and have more online gambling opportunities there as well. Okay, uh, great question about what has happened during COVID. That is a fascinating story in of itself in terms of what happened with gambling. You go back to when COVID hit, the casino shut down. For, this was the first time in our nation's history in a long, long time, there was no access to brick and mortar casino. We thought, that's it, we're going to solve gambling addiction and we'll be done with it. But what happened is that people just shifted their gambling. So instead of brick and mortar, that is then when they went to online or when they went into home uh, gambling operations. Now, when we go back to 2022, we know that gambling revenue is at an all time high in Las Vegas. Uh, we know that gambling revenue in California has also returned to pre pandemic levels. So we know that uh, gambling and even that stretch of, of trying to put it down didn't and it just came roaring back so where i worry most about of course is the expansion of new forms of gambling new access points of gambling uh through smartphones and through various technologies 
this fall we will have a sports betting proposition that will get to the voters. I, I highly anticipate that that'll pass. So within a year, year and a half from now, we all of us right now would have the probably would have the ability to bet on our mobile sports phone on our phone, really on all sorts of mobile sports betting. All right, so let me pause there, and we're going to shift now into treatment. But there's one more uh, question about um, gambling. So I assume there's been a very big spike in online gambling to the new users during COVID. Again, we don't have a great way of measuring that. We do know that the people who come into treatment, we don't see a lot of online gambling. But again, not everyone comes into treatment, only a sliver of people with gambling addiction and all addiction ever make it into treatment. Um, I think that's that's certainly very important. I personally have seen uh, a lot more patients coming in, um, you know, during the pandemic, struggling with online gaming or online gambling, but also with different forms of new types of gambling. So gambling on um, options, gambling using cryptocurrency, gambling using the um, what they call financial tech apps on the phone to access the trading houses and things like that. That's when they develop, uh, you know, addiction. Let's turn to let's turn to treatment and things that I do when the office closed. So the first thing, of course, is prevention, and and I don't think we do nearly enough resources in prevention. Prevention is the best treatment for all addiction. These are prevention ideas and tools that we've done for gambling through the years. So it starts with strengthening the family connection, the community connection uh, to, to reduce gambling behavior or not reduce to reduce problem gambling behavior. So as an example of some communities have said, we don't want these buses in our community anymore. Some have said, no, we want more family options, more family centered activities that people can do rather than the casino. Why is it that the casino buses have to be the only source of cheap entertainment that's available to a lot of Asian communities? That's an example. Uh, for service providers, this is where oftentimes your therapy has to be sometimes more than just therapy. Sometimes it's linking as an example with gamblers to other things that they need to prevent gambling addiction. So for instance, the English uh, language classes, job training, uh, public assistant benefits, financial counseling so they know not to take out predatory loans, that they understand how banks work. I had uh, a couple of patients who were very mistrusting of just the banking system and wanted to do everything cash. And that you know, unfortunately created a lot of problems for them by just having too much cash lying around create a lot of vulnerabilities to, to losing cash and things like that. Take a step back, just treatment in general for addiction in California. Uh, there are 500, I didn't realize this, there are nearly 500 substance use disorder treatment programs that are licensed in LA County alone. So when people say, hey, do you know any good programs? This is public and private. How are we supposed to know 500 of our treatment options? It's enormous. So that's a huge issue. We know there are also a number of unlicensed providers who provide addiction treatment, but they're not licensed. Think like sober living homes. These are not licensed facility, but they look and feel like treatment. 
um, nonprofits, of course, out there, what we do here at, at UCLA. I wanted to bring up the religious and spiritual organizations because I've had a number of patients in the past who would seek help from Korean American churches and clergy. And they would meet with them primarily for management of, say, gambling or even alcohol. Uh, and But they weren't providing treatment by a licensed program or by a licensed provider. It was being very much inside the church-based services. So that's another really important area of outreach I think we really, really need to think about. Is how do we, as DMH providers, partner with local churches to ensure that there's a good workflow uh, and good messaging and good training for our number of our, 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 our church staff about addiction and various treatments. And again, if anyone's doing any active projects with the church right now, just throw them in the chat. I'd love to hear more about that. Here are the treatment settings for addiction, of course, from the uh, detox to the hospital, residential, partial, intensive outpatient, office space, and now online treatment or telehealth. So when, when we go into now kind of the treatment principles on addictions, um, providing treatment of addiction in AAPI, and these are things that really just lived experience, things that I've learned through the years, things that I think could help uh, in, the, in the clinic right now. And although they may not be really scientifically tested, but they're just common sense things that make sense. First, you go back to the kind of standard stigma we hear about. I cannot, I must be successful and I cannot show signs of weakness. The model minority myth that we really see in our own patients. Um, this sort of expectation is overwhelming. Um, the stigma is intense. And I highlight this because the first step in overcoming stigma is recognizing it, is identifying and it's sharing with your client. I know what you must be going through is it possible that you're going through what is known as the model minority that creates stigma, where for whatever reason you feel you cannot show signs of weakness where you have to be perfect? The other common stigma theme I hear a lot, it's a burden to share my emotions. Growing up, I, I uh, there's a theme in my nuclear family of don't air your dirty laundry. And it was basically this idea that whatever problems you have, don't talk about it to anyone. Don't talk about it to your friends. Don't talk about it to ourselves. And definitely don't talk about it to a stranger like a therapist. So that was a dude, a stigmatized thing. Of course, it makes it, well, if you're too emotional, you're now viewed as someone who complainer and you're not a doer and you're not self-reliant. The idea of stoicism and silence is a sign of strength that if you have feelings that that's not viewed as a sign of emotional strength. Um, and you have to stiff upper lip and, and always get it done. And even just talking to a family member is not an option because it's a burden to share. Again, these are these are general general statements, but these are things that we see, things that we see all the time. The real question is when you have a client who's saying that it's a burden to share my emotions, how do you work with that? And I remember oftentimes saying from the very first meeting, I'm going to now imagine and get a sense of, it may be hard for that person to even say anything to me. So I, I learned this in APCC a lot when I would say, well, tell me how you're feeling. And they would go on this long, 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 long stretch in, in their native language. And the translator would say to me, he feels fine. 
I say, but he just said all these things, what actually was said. And again, what was said was a lot of cursory administrative things like, oh, this doctor looks very good. He's very young. You know, I don't know what we're doing here. I'm, well, how is he going to get it better? It wasn't actually talking about how you feel. So I think that's a, a, another major source of shame. Uh, we get this a lot. I'm, un, I'm, uh, I'm feeling ungrateful for all that I do have. So when people think, uh, particularly second, second generation and third generation AAPI, think like the college students right now. When they think about all their sacrifices that their grandparents and parents had to make a better life. And now here they are in college struggling with mental health, feeling guilty about where, why am I anxious and depressed and, and angry when I've been given everything that my parents were never given, creating this huge, huge uh, sense of guilt and sense of stigma, meaning that I don't even deserve treatment. I, I've had a number of API clients who say, Dr. Fong, it's a privilege to meet with you, but I don't deserve to be seen by you because I've done so many bad things. And I think it would be better for you to see other patients who deserve you more. That's like the deepest level of shame that you can reach, right? Where it's like, I don't even deserve treatment. But I think that this is particularly relevant in our younger second and third generation AAPIs who may be feeling in that, and that may limit them from coming in. It's disrespectful to me to go to mental health to talk about my feelings, to talk about um, things that I should be relying on faith or prayer or God for to help me get through. So I had one patient who described to me, she said very clearly, she said, I thought by seeing you as a therapist that I was cheating on God, that somehow that I wasn't doing God's work by going to you and not to uh, uh, the church itself. I thought that was very, very interesting there. Okay. Uh, I don't know how to talk about mental health with my relatives. So a wide variety, whether it's your parents or your children, Again, this concept of um, some AAPI parents and older adults not believing or understanding in mental health or what mental conditions really are. Um, I think that's a, a huge source of stigma that we have to work through and try and reverse. Um, and I think that's, that's very much there. So how do we navigate stigma? We hear this all the time. Stigma, 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 stigma leads to not seeking treatment. Stigma leads to pain. Stigma leads to you know, poor outcomes, but how do we actually reduce it? Um, I experienced it like this growing up. I experienced this when I chose to go into the mental health field. This whole idea of, again, if you have a mental health problem, keep it under wraps. Don't talk about it. Um, in my family, I have a, um, um, a cousin who has fetal alcohol syndrome and an aunt with Down syndrome. And growing up, my parents would say, he's special. But what they didn't realize by labeling that he's special really stigmatized it. So instead of him just being him, it was like, oh, he's special. And you had to, quote, be careful around him, implying that he was someone to be feared, not necessarily loved. And I thought I didn't quite grasp what that stigma was doing to me until I actually became a psychiatrist. Uh, again, this idea that if you talk about being depressed, or if you talk about hearing voices, it's bound to happen. So all this stuff we see, I think is a commonly, you know, in a lot of first, second, and third generations. So that all equates to stigma. 
So how do we navigate? What is the antidote to stigma? Of course, education and empathy. Education, empathy, and understanding. And I think that's how I really worked in my own clinical practices is really doing these five areas. Number one, looking at that language and cultural barrier and saying, I have to reduce this. So although it's very difficult, a translator is crucial. A person who speaks that language is even better. And using the newer technology to reduce that low language and cultural barrier is so helpful because you can't do any education and empathy unless you're actually able to talk to the person and, and hear and, 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 and understand. I like to ask about their traditional beliefs and values about mental health and, and, and illness. I think that's part. So I'll say things like, well, tell me what your understanding of what mental health is and is not. What do you believe you're going through? What does your family think about medication? Uh, what do you, you, your family think about the word depression? Um, from a medical standpoint, we find that when we do a lot of other medical type procedures in a mental health practice, that that seems to really engage people that things are happening. So at the, D, at the APCC, we used to do these things. I remember I did these things all the time. I get the patient up, take them to a scale. Sometimes I would um, take their blood pressure or have the stethoscope and just listen to their heart and lungs. Uh, and it was all part of reducing the stigma that mental health isn't just talk, 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 that there actually is some activity being done. Uh, for me as a psychiatrist, administering the injections to AAPI clients also brought up a lot of um, uh, reduced stigma because they could feel like we were actually providing them with injections. Um, I know like in a lot of um, uh, AAPI communities in LA, they get a lot of vitamin B12 shots or a lot of injections for allergies. And those were very much accepted as, okay, I'm getting something that's going to actually do something for me. It's the same thing, I think, when it comes to medications. Involving the family as a, as a treatment unit is really crucial. Um, instead of just talking to the patient and no one else, getting the whole family involved when it's appropriate, I think is very, very useful. And this concept of ethnopsychopharmacology, this idea that we have to take into account one's cultural background, one's uh, ethnicity, uh, and how they view medication, what do they view doing, uh, and this is very important. And I've had a number, so many clients that either resisted medication because of false beliefs or, um, you know, not understanding what they would do or fears of addiction or fears of them being controlled or being poisoned. All that's part of cultural experience sometimes and how people feel about medicines. I've had other patients say to me, well, I want really big pills. I don't want those small little itty bitty pills, or I want red pills, I don't want blue pills. All that matters because they all go back to reducing stigma and reducing shame about taking medications to impact mental health. Okay, so the other things I, I think are helpful, and I do this myself, and I really encourage men and women to engage other traditional cultural interventions that for health and wellness. UCLA, we have an East-West medicine clinic that uses both East plus West. And again, a lot of those traditional Chinese medicine approaches, acupuncture, uh, visiting a traditional Chinese physician, these are all things I think are really valuable to help reduce the stigma of getting help for mental health. 
a lot of the language I would use through the years has not been on not the word depression or mood or anxiety or hallucinations. I would focus on health, energy, vitality. Uh, and I would often say sometimes when I'm prescribing medication, I'll say, here's a medication that's going to improve your energy. It's going to help you sleep better. It's going to make you feel more alive. You know, instead of saying, oh, here's a medication that's going to make you less depressed. Because again, that word sometimes I think gets lost in translation uh, to a lot of clients. One of the things we did at APCTC, uh, we did um, small groups. And I remember once a month we would have a group of four to six uh, older Asians that would come in uh, and they were all, uh, you know, serious mental illness. It was depression, bipolar, schizophrenia. But it was a group of four, and I would talk with all four of them just about their health, their wellness, and their medication, because all four were taking medication. So it was a really interesting experience. It was a, a group experience on medications. And I always remember one time, one of the group member was clearly more psychotic than usual. And another group member said to her, I think you're not taking your medication. And that was the, so powerful because it actually meant the group was taking care of one another. So if you're not doing these sorts of things now, think about how that might look because the group support of people going through recovery is so powerful uh, uh, of a treatment tool. Of course, focusing on the family is really essential. Um, I think it's so valuable for us to engage families and have families present when we're working with clients or have separate family meetings without the clients that we can re-engage or redefine expectations. I think that's very, very important. From a medication standpoint, we know that there are cultural and genetic differences between um, AAPI groups as well as versus non-AAPIs. Almost all of these clinical trials that are done on medications don't include a large number of AAPI participants. Uh, we know that there are differences in metabolism and genetic profiles in terms of uh, and sensitivities. So we don't have those things. And that's why our philosophies are tend to be start on a lower dose before titrating you know, too quickly. Um, and again, if I said to you, what are the actual evidence-based psychotherapies that are specific for AAPI populations? That's an area I don't know much about in terms of what's actually out there. But I think, you know, anything that says it specifically uh, for our culture, I think we have to be uh, pay very close attention to how to do it properly in the way it was designed. So a few things, other things I think office-based clinicians can do for engagement, for retention, uh, and just to make the treatment experience more interesting. You know, this idea of Feng Shui and negative flow and energy. And you see a lot of these things, um, you know, talked about, you know, but do we bring it into therapy? I've done it a few times because I think it does engage again, this idea of how do I get more help? How do I get my energy balance? What can I do to have more vitality? And those are all themes that some clients will understand better than saying, again, Let's work on your urges or cravings, you know, things in terms that they may be more familiar about. Uh, a couple of things here, we just talked again a little bit about the comp uh, use of family and uh, respecting confidentiality there as well, um, and going from there. Other things I think 
Um, the, the traditional extensive questioning we, we tend to do. So when we have standard intakes that have just question after question after question after question, oftentimes that's gonna shut people down. And I think we have to be careful, particularly recognizing that for some APA clients when they come in, how hard it is for them to be on the in the office or how, or how difficult it is emotionally for them to be there on the Zoom talking about issues that they may never have ever talked about a stranger with before. So you start hammering, do you smoke, do you use drugs, do you use cannabis, are you suicidal, uh, have you ever been hit by others, do you have trauma, where are you getting your money from, how much money do you make per month? You know, that can be really off-putting. So I really encourage people to think, how do we get this information in more collaborative ways rather than kind of our hammer questioning that we're kind of uh, used to. An example uh, of how a community got involved in San Francisco a few years back when they were thinking about gambling, they said, you know what, we're not going to have a gambling treatment program. We're going to open up a, a tea house and we're going to have open discussions about finances, uh, money, um, how to make more money. We're going to talk about uh, how to avoid bankruptcy. Uh, and that framing of it really help people to start talking about their concerns about money, their worries about debt, their worries about how do I pay these things off, their worries about how do I make enough money to send back to my country of origin. If they just said, oh, we're going to have a drop-in center for gambling behavior, that certainly wasn't going to appeal. So you have to make treatment acceptable uh, for folks. The principles that we have for medications are very similar to what we do for any other participant, but or any other um, community group. But I want to highlight again for addiction treatment, we target treat the co occurring disorder, depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar at the same time as we do for the addiction. Uh, we don't have any data on to say are there any differential responses on for AAPI communities based on medications. I, we think they all respond similarly to non AAPI communities. That would make sense. And I think about, again, the, the medications as laying the groundwork for therapy. So it's not that you take this medication, go away, go home, and never come back. It should be, no, you take this medication so that you can now come back and talk to us more in, in therapy and counseling. Uh, we mentioned about using those Eastern treatment philosophies. Uh, and here's an example of a community engagement project related to gambling slash treatment. This is from Philadelphia. And for a few years, Philadelphia was starting to struggle with stories of gambling addiction occurring in Chinatown. The buses were there. There was talk of putting a casino right in the heart of Chinatown. Um, that was a concern. And so the community responded, instead of saying, putting up billboards, what a hundred gambler. Do you have a problem with gambling? Call here. They said, let's put up something the community would look at and say, here's a part of our community that's not so invasive. And they did this on the back of a building and they put up a mural that's called Fables of Fortune. And inside it was just themes of gambling and very subtle. So you see the yin and the yang, the balance. You see families embracing. You see this subtle term, I need help. You see an empathic, caring response here. You see the language of a road traveled 
So it was a little bit of a combination of art and community, but what it did is sparked communities to start thinking and having discussions about what gambling is and isn't and what should be done. Uh, it cut off a little bit, but there was, you know, uh, some numbers that were attached to um, uh, the, the mirror as well that people could call. So let me pause there because I want to make sure I get to other treatment options that are essential for addiction because I think it's important for DMH providers to know, and this is true for all AAPI, but also all non-AAPIs, the things that we have in our toolbox for addiction. And mainly first on the meds, always remember these, we have four medications for alcohol use disorder. We have a variety of different ways to administer them as a tablet or as an injectable. And again, this is the real question. Inside most DMH clinics, are these medications available? I know the answer is kind of, maybe yes or no. I, the real question is how do we get these medications that really do work into the hands of you know, DMH clients while involving SAPSI or while involving psychiatrists in the DMH clinics to actually prescribe them. Most general psychiatrists, right, are, are somewhat hesitant to prescribe medications for addiction, but you do not need special training to do so. You don't need a board certification in addiction psychiatry to do that. You, you can do it as is. But just want to put up the, the menu here, what we have for alcohol. Uh, we have a bunch of meds that we tried for cocaine. Unfortunately, none of them have really panned out. Same thing with methamphetamine, a bunch of different medications. None of them have really panned out as FDA approved or, or strong signal for medication for methamphetamine use. Cannabis, we were researching a few things, but nothing right now. For cannabis withdrawal, what we tell patients is hydration, eating, rest, and maybe some supportive medication like a, a benzodiazepine or, um, or, or Benadryl to kind of help with sleep or anxiety. And that's pretty much about it. But these are medicines that actually look at trying to stop people from using cannabis or lowering their uh, overall cannabis uh, use. Nicotine, again, we have a lot of different options from the replacement therapies, the patches, the gums, and the lozenge. Now, these can get expensive. And there used to be LA County used to give the nicotine replacement products out for free by calling 1-800-NO-BUS or having various nonprofits or various uh, grant agencies give these things out. These things always come in cycle and waves. So it's something, again, to think about, should your DMH clinic get back into the business of having a tobacco cessation group, tobacco cessation program, or a what I would call a smoke-free champion or a tobacco cessation specialist that would work with clients that identify as um, smoking. The other two prescription medications um, are also out there. They're non-nicotine replacement. Shantix Renoclean works very, very well. The downside though, they did have a recall last fall. So getting it in stock on the market is very difficult. All these medicines are available, last I checked on Medi-Cal formulary. So they're not gonna cost patients a lot of money to get it to them. It's just gonna require um, therapists to encourage um, practitioners uh, and physicians to prescribe them for them. 1-800-NO-BUTS, that's the 800 number for uh, smoking. There's another one for vaping specifically, it's, but it's not 1-800-NO-VAPE, it's something else. But inside these helpline, they, they are of course, uh, Asian American Pacific 
Islander uh, lang cultural language providers that are done in Asian languages. So that's available uh, throughout the, the week for support related to reducing tobacco use. So again, in your DMH state clinic, you know, this is something where you can say we need more signage or we need to put this into play as a standard part of our workflow. If you identify as a smoker, we've got to spend a few minutes making sure that we do smoking cessation work and ensuring that people have the, the helpline number here for that. When it comes to opioids, of course, we have a wide variety of opioid medications that are available. Methadone only in methadone clinics. Now, Trexone, which is a, can be prescribed by any doctor. And of course, the buprenorphine that comes in a variety of different formulations uh, that can only be prescribed by a doctor who's got the buprenorphine waiver. They've since changed that. But again, I think a lot of psychiatrists are hesitant to prescribe if it's not something they traditionally spend a lot. But here's an example of collaboration. If you're seeing a client in the DMH system and they have Medicare, or let's say they have private insurance, they can be seen via telehealth at UCLA. So right now, if you have a client, let's say at APCTC, and they have Medicare, and they need potentially a medication for like uh, buprenorphine, and if there's no one inside that DMH clinic to do that, well, we could actually see the patient at UCLA via telehealth to prescribe them buprenorphine, but they have to have Medicare. We don't take Medi-Cal uh, for 18 and up here at UCLA. Question comes in is, uh, are there different treatment between adult and minors in relation to medications? It's a great question because all these medications are FDA approved 18 and up. Only buprenorphine, I believe, is 16 and up. So these aren't necessarily medications that are geared toward adolescents. That uh, in and of itself tends to be, all these medicines are really used on an off-label basis. Narcan, um, overdose education and nausea distribution is a huge area I think we all should do. And again, does DMH clinics do this? Is, is Narcan available in every single DMH clinic? That's one of the things that if it's not, it should be because could there ever be an overdose inside a clinic? Sure, someone could use substances before they get to the clinic, they overdose. Uh, so having uh, naloxone on site, I think is, is important. Number two, getting standard practice of saying to clients, if you are have a history of substance use disorder or if you're occurring on any opioids, you really should be getting some Narcan at home for protection in case there's an overdose. So that's an area I think we need to do. A, Oftentimes, a DMH provider say we need more training on this. So um, there's a, a Claire, um, Claire Matrix in West LA. They do a lot of online training every month for our Narcan training and distribution so that you as a mental health provider can know how do I do this? How do I educate patients? You know, what's the best way of doing these sorts of things? Okay. Um, one area that oftentimes doesn't get talked about enough uh, particularly by non-docs, is discussing what to do with expired medication or medications that, that patients no longer take anymore. Now, I've gotten some pushback from various therapists through the years that say, well, it's really not my lane to discuss medications at all. I get that. But I do believe it is your lane as a therapist to talk about, here's how you properly dispose 
of older expired medication or medication you're no longer taking. Why this matters is one of the problems with addiction is when you have opioids lying around, when you have benzos and other controlled substances that are not disposed of, that can, of course, can lead to risk for overdose and lead to risk for others continuing to use. So there are proper ways to get rid of these things. Uh, medicine take back programs or firehouses, they have to lock the, the strong um, containers. Um, you're supposed to throw away in the trash uh, if it's not a uh, not if it's a, not a controlled substance like an antidepressant. And the irony of irony is if you have controlled substances, the DEA and the CDC and the FDA says if you want to get rid of it safely, the safest way is to flush it down the toilet. I always am troubled by that because I don't like to waste water. I don't like to put more chemicals into the water supply. But it makes sense is that you're wanting to get rid of substances quickly that you can't throw them into the trash because then people will just go grab it from the trash. So that's an example of a prevention message I think therapists should be thinking about uh, making sure that's covered. All right, so uh, I wanted to also finish with some ideas of other resources. And this is where I want to see more in the chat about where you're working, what other resources you have, other programs or links that you have uh, uh, there as well. So here at UCLA, that's the building I'm in. Um, we have our hospital across the street that has like 650 beds. We have our psychiatric hospital that has 75 beds. We don't take Medi-Cal 18 and up, unfortunately. We have all the services from outpatient, intensive outpatient three days a week, partial hospital. So for any of your DMH clients that have Medicare, who are interested in need addiction treatment, we can provide this treatment either telehealth or in person here in Westwood. So that's very important for folks to remember. The other things are, um, and again, I included here some of our phone numbers for our addiction clinic, uh, as well as other doctors here at UCLA that provide care for Medicare. Uh, and then that's our dual program as well for uh, Medicare patients who want a three day or week experience in person and that would be here in Westwood. But other learning resources for uh, DMH providers, I think these are the four top websites for addiction and mental health information. They're constantly updated, of course, they're the federal government stuff, but they really are the best in science and the best in clinical resources. SAMHSA, of course, has all these amazing resources called TIPS, Treatment Improvement Protocols, which are essentially free textbooks. And I think now they're up to like a couple hundred that have various, all sorts of different topics on um, dual diagnosis, managing suicidality, medications. Uh, I'm sure there's a number of culturally relevant ones, screening uh, initiatives, things that could help your day-to-day -day work just go, go better. My contact information to hear my um, email, and my office number. So I'll leave that up. Uh, I want to thank again the, uh, the good folks over at the DMH and uh, the UCLA PMHP for putting this together. I was looking at their website training and I saw so many really amazing and interesting uh, training opportunities. So I think that's definitely great to go back in and log in there again here. So, all right. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Stay safe out there.